Well, please open your Bibles this morning back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, as we begin our time in the Word today. We've been studying uh, through Mark's gospel over these weeks where our pastor has been away for a couple of weeks, and we anticipate uh, his return this week and his return to the series of Building a Christian Mind, and to reorient us or orient us to what we're looking at here in Mark's gospel, we're looking at Christ opening the understanding of His disciples, their need for understanding, uh, as they are slow of understanding and hard of heart, even as the Lord performs miracles, they are slow to understand the significance of who Christ is. And so we've considered that the Lord has to open the ears of the deaf, and the Lord has to open hard hearts, soften hard hearts. He has to open the eyes of the blind. And on Tuesday, uh, we made our way through verse 33, where Peter confesses the Lord Jesus in his own presuppositions and with his own assumptions that Christ is the expected Messiah of the Jews, that he has come to restore Israel and to overthrow Roman power. And Jesus, of course, has to correct Peter's understanding and clarify his purpose for coming, that he came this time to deal with sin by dying on the cross and then by rising and calling people to Himself for forgiveness and for to repent of their sins. And of course, Peter was so astounded at what the Lord had said that he rebuked the one he just confessed as the Messiah, the King of Kings. He turned around and began to attempt to authoritatively teach Christ and say, no, that is not the way it's going to happen, Lord. And our Lord turned to Peter and said, no, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Your failure to submit to me, your failure to allow your presuppositions and assumptions to be shaped by my words is equal to you being a mouthpiece of Satan. You are having your minds on the thing, your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. And immediately following that, we're going to pick up this morning, beginning in verse 34, where Jesus begins to explain discipleship. And we see in verse 34 that He called the crowds to Him with His disciples. So Jesus is now giving us a a teaching about what it means to follow Him, and He's teaching not only His disciples, but all those who were there, the crowds, He calls everyone, and He explains what it means to follow Him. And that's the theme this morning, Jesus explains discipleship. And we could uh, say that what Jesus is explaining is He's explaining what it is to be a Christian. What does a truly regenerated person look like? What does it mean to follow Christ? Well, it's not simply walking an aisle and saying a prayer and then going about your life the way it was before and just adding Christ to life. No, it's a complete change of orientation. It's a complete change of allegiance. You once 
had complete allegiance to yourself and to the things of this world. And Jesus says those who follow Him are those who now have complete allegiance to Him. And as we find in the New Testament made very clear that what Jesus describes here is the result of someone who has been changed by the grace of God. The call to discipleship and the explanation of discipleship that our Lord gives here when He says that you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Me, it's, it's not earning salvation, but it's the expression of someone who has been given a new heart by the grace of God, who's turned to Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin and serves the Lord Jesus in anticipation of His coming. And so Jesus, after a strong rebuke in verse 33, teaches the disciples and the crowd the meaning of being a disciple, the meaning of being a true Christian, the meaning of walking with Christ. He's dealing with the presuppositions of those who hear, And that is what growth in Christ constantly does. As we follow Christ, Christ deals with our presuppositions and our assumptions and our prejudices of what it means to be a Christian. And and we all come to Christ with baggage, don't we? We all come to Christ thinking certain things, and as we grow in Christ, those presuppositions and prejudices and pre-existing ideas are changed and restructured by the authority of the Word of God. And, you know, this is precisely what Pastor Dodd is doing with the mega-series of a Christian mind, right? We're, we're, learning, we're learning about our own presuppositions, and we're allowing the Scripture in a wholesale way to shake the foundations of our thinking so that we can follow Christ as Christ describes in this passage. It's critical It's critical as a believer, as someone who professes to follow Christ, that you remain teachable, that you remain tender, that you may remain responsive to the Word of God, that you don't let sin harden your heart and harden your mind in assumptions and presuppositions that would cause you to resist the work of the Spirit through the Word of God in your life. We constantly need our thinking restructured. And Jesus is doing that as the great teacher. He's doing that with His disciples, with these people who they've already left everything His disciples have. They've confessed Him as the Messiah, and now He is continuing to teach them to restructure the way that they think about following Jesus Christ. If we think about what's taking place in the first century, Peter and the other apostles, as well as most of the Jews, expected Christ to come and restore the kingdom to Israel. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, I think it's in verse 6, after Jesus rises from the grave, after He has been with the disciples for a period of time, 
And before he ascends to heaven, he's with his disciples, and the disciples ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? That still is their expectation. Even after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord, they expect the kingdom to be restored to Israel. And it's very important, thinking even about different interpretations of eschatology, it's very important to understand that Jesus does not say, no, Israel's out of the picture. Right? He doesn't deny that there's coming a time when there will be a restoration to Israel. But what he says, disciples, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has established. And then he commissions them to be his witnesses to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what we find then in the book of Acts is as the Spirit of God comes down on these men, the Spirit of God doesn't put them into some kind of charismatic frenzy in a church service. The Spirit of God equips them, emboldens them to be strong, clear witnesses for Jesus Christ. But during the ministry of Christ... As they anticipate the Messiah, they're still thinking in terms of an earthly kingdom. And so Jesus clarifies, beginning in verse 31, that He came to deal with sin by dying on the cross. He came to defeat death by rising again. And the Jews and the Gentiles needed Jesus to deal with sin and death. Because Jews and their presuppositions, their prejudices, they thought that they were fine. We're God's chosen people. But Jesus says, no, there's a sacrifice that has to be made. And I came to make that sacrifice as the Redeemer for my people. So as we come now to this passage, we need to understand, just by way of introduction, that when Jesus calls the disciples and the crowds to follow Him in this way, He's not addressing a specific kind of ministry in this passage. You know, For example, someone might say, well, it says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And you know, that, that means that I should probably go into some kind of vocational service, or I need to go to a foreign country as a missionary or, or something like that. And you, that, that idea, that thinking can easily get, get read into this passage. But Jesus is not addressing a specific kind of ministry. He's dealing with a mindset. He's dealing with a mindset. And so as we approach this passage, understand that a radical alteration of life circumstances will miss the point of the passage. We see, see this passage and think, you know, I, I need to just give everything up. I, I, need to, I need to go live in a mountain somewhere, right? I need to become an ascetic or something like that, you know, that's the only way I can follow Christ, or again, I need to, to go to a foreign field, or, or whatever the case may be, a radical alteration of life circumstances misses the point of the passage. The disciples already left everything. They are already following Christ, 
And the crowds that Jesus calls to him, they couldn't. They had vocations. They were living in, a, in, in many cases, probably a subsistence level existence. So this isn't a call for a radical alteration of life circumstances. You can actually radically change your life circumstances, and this is really important to understand. You can radically change your life circumstances and still have flawed thinking about what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Right? It's like, well, if I, if I go and minister somewhere, or if I go and, and help a church plant, or I, I go and, and do something extravagant, you know, now I'm following Christ. Well... Sometimes that is the case, but you can change your circumstances, you can make those decisions with still a fundamental flawed thinking about what it means to have a heart postured in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all you come with is a Messiah complex that's not even willing to be taught. You can change your circumstances and still have flawed thinking. Jesus is defining a mindset for all of life, not a specific ministry. The call to discipleship applies to all professing Christians in all places, in every vocation. The call to discipleship is what everyday Christianity should look like in whatever providential circumstances God has placed you in. It's a heart that is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and a heart that values what the Lord values, a heart that longs for the Lord's return, a heart that makes decisions in light of the truth of Scripture, in light of eternity, in light of a love for God, and in light of a love for those around us. In other words, if you want... What Jesus says here to be expanded, read the rest of your New Testament. The epistles expand this. What does it look like in everyday life? Well, here's what Christ did. Here's how you live in response to that. That is the basic pattern of the epistles in our New Testament. So as we come to this passage, this in Mark's gospel, one of the more extended records of Jesus' words, the overarching statement is in the first verse, in verse 34. As Jesus calls the crowds and disciples to him, he begins in this way, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the first point for our, the message this morning summarizes this verse. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his, his cross and follow me. The first point is forfeit your life. Forfeit your life to follow Christ. Forfeit your life to follow Christ. What does it look like to forfeit your life. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, an open invitation, a broad description, it applies to all people. If anyone would come after me, this is what it looks like 
deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Forfeiting your life means that you renounce self-sovereignty. Deny yourself. Renounce self-sovereignty. Renounce idolatry. The, the word behind the idea of deny is, is a word that means to repudiate or disown. Repudiate and disown the supposed authority that you have over your own life. Renounce self-sovereignty. Renounce self-idolatry. Followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus relinquish all authority to their maker and their king. He is the Lord of their life. They fall before him in awe and in terror because of their sinfulness like Paul did on the road to Damascus. They recognize who they are in and of themselves, in light of Christ, and they fall in horror before the Lord of glory, and they fall in worship to the King of kings, and they claim Him to be the King of their life. They deny themselves, and they follow their King. This means that a follower of Christ will deny anything that anything contributes to their salvation. They'll they'll deny their self-sovereignty over earning their eternal reward. No, I cannot earn my reward. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can generate. I can't shape the gospel according to my own image. No, I relinquish the demands of the gospel, the demands of what it means to enter eternal life. I relinquish that to what God says. I relinquish that to the Lord Jesus Christ. I renounce self-sovereignty. I renounce self-worship. And Galatians and Hebrews, among others, but Galatians and Hebrews specifically deal with the way false teaching of the gospel have begun to infiltrate the church, where false teachers were who had refused to renounce their own self-sovereignty, their own self-worship. They were introducing works into the body of Christ, saying, you have to do this, you have to live this way. And Paul actually says at the end of Galatians, they're doing this so that they may boast in your flesh. Now, there's nothing that you can do to obtain your salvation. It is in Christ alone. And you, you must renounce any, any kind of attempt to demand that God allow you into His kingdom on your terms. No, you come, you come according to His word and His authority. You submit your thinking, which includes your assumptions and presuppositions. This is a way of life. You submit your thinking, your actions, and your words to the Word of God. God's Word is the flashpoint. God's Word is the place where you go to have your self-sovereignty dealt with, your self-worship addressed. It's where you go for the conviction of the Spirit of God 
to change you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, that as we behold His glory, we are changed from one degree of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of God. Well, how does that happen? It happens when a person is committed to being submitted to the Word of God. Those who followed Christ submit to Christ as Lord. Jesus here is not talking about an additional spiritual experience. All right, I've, I've come to Christ, I've, I've named Christ, and now, now I'm going to start living for Christ. No, that's a false dichotomy. True Christians come and they surrender themselves to Christ as King of kings and as Lord of lords. And the significance of that and the weight of it, there's a progressive understanding as we grow in Christ. But the default posture of a true believer is Christ is my King. He is the one that I live for. And so to refuse to deny yourself, to maintain your self-sovereignty, to maintain your self-worship, is to practically deny being a Christian. Say, well, you know, I've named Christ and I walked the aisle, I've been in church, but, you know, I just don't really feel like obeying Christ. Scripture knows of no such Christian. A Christian, a follower of Christ, is one who Jesus says denies himself, denies herself, repudiates, disowns his or her authority, and relinquishes all to the authority of their Maker and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. You forfeit your life to Christ. Jesus also says that this person, whoever follows him, denies himself and takes up his cross. You renounce self-sovereignty and self-idolatry, self-worship, and you're willing to receive suffering. You take up your cross. The cross that Jesus refers to in the first century is an instrument of torture. It's not a piece of jewelry. It's not a picture. It's not a decoration. It's an instrument of torture. It's an instrument of public torture for the Romans. Some estimate that up to 30,000 crucifixions took place in the time of Christ. And these crucifixions, you know, think about 30,000. That is a large number of people that were crucified. And they took place in public places along the road. They were deterrents to crime, deterrents to zealots who wanted to overthrow Rome. And, and Rome would put people on a cross and, and, and they designed the cross to elongate suffering, to elongate the pain, to elongate the torture as a warning. You don't mess with Rome. This is what happens. It's an instrument of torture, an instrument of prolonged suffering. And Jesus says, with that image in mind, 
perhaps even as they were making their way around the country, there, there could have been criminals crucified that they would see. And Jesus says, you, if you're going to follow me, you deny yourself and you take up your cross. You take up that instrument of torture, that instrument of suffering, and you follow me. The idea here corresponds to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 when after giving 11 chapters to exposit and expand the gospel, he summarizes the believer's overarching response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we understand the gospel, as we understand what Christ has done, the significance of all that he has done, the the righteousness that He acquired for us through His active obedience and the redemption that He purchased through His passive obedience on the cross. How do we respond? Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Sacrifice has the idea of of being on the altar, of dying, and Paul says, though, as a Christian, you give yourself as a living sacrifice. You're living for the Lord, but you're living under His authority. You're living for His purposes. You daily take up your cross. In the corresponding passage of Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. There's a mindset that a believer has that I am living for the Lord and my allegiance is to the Lord to the point that I will suffer anything for the sake of the Lord, even death. But there's some aspects that contribute to this idea of taking up our cross daily. In both Romans 8.13 and Colossians 1, go ahead and turn uh, to those passages. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Again, with this particular passage in Mark that we are, that we are looking at today, we could just be flipping through the whole New Testament for the whole message because there are so many corresponding passages and passages that expand on what Jesus is saying here. In Romans 8, verse 13, Paul says this, and, and you know, let's start in verse 12. He's describing, he's describing those who are not condemned because of the fullness of Christ's work and our response To the Lord, he says, This is what it looks like to live for Christ, to live with the Spirit in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And and his argument here is if, if. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. And one of the characteristics of those who have the Spirit of Christ is they put to death the deeds of the body. And then in a corresponding passage, Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3, verse 5. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 
Paul has summarized our life in Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. Now verse 5, Colossians 3 verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. And then he lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed at knowledge after the image of its Creator. Both of those passages, as Paul is expanding on life in Christ, he says, part of life in Christ, part of denying yourself and taking up your cross is putting to death what is earthly in you. And, and again, we become, we, we become somewhat acclimated to this language in Scripture if we've read our Bibles over a period of years. You know, it's like you put to death and then you go on. But no, think about put to death. The idea is a close hand-to-hand combat where, where you're strangling someone. It's that kind of intensity. That's what it looks like to follow Christ. With that kind of intensity, you are putting to death what is earthly in you. You're putting to death the flesh. You're not making any provision for the flesh. You're willing to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4, let's go ahead to 1 Peter There's a couple passages there that are helpful as we consider this idea of taking up your cross. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter is speaking of how you live in the world as a follower of Christ, being willing to suffer, even as Christ suffered for you. And as you live in a way that is distinct from the world, as you live in a way that Paul described in Romans 8 and Colossians 3, the world will not appreciate that. All right, you, you used to run with us. What happened to you? And in verse 4, well, again, let's back up to verse 3. 1 Peter 4 Verse 3, for, that, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They speak evil of you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All right, so you follow Christ, you put to death the the deeds of the body, you put to death what is earthly in you, you're following Christ, you can expect 
that the way that you are following Christ, when it looks different from the world and when it counters what the world wants to do and when your commitment to Christ counters what the people in the world want you to do with them, they will malign you. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when people revile you and say all kinds of untruth about you for my sake. It's going to happen. Peter tells us in a little further in chapter 4, you know, there's the maligning for living for the Lord, but the people that Peter writes to in chapter 1, they've been described as those who are scattered. They're the elect exiles, and they've been scattered all over for the sake of Christ. And they're facing suffering. In chapter 2, servants are facing suffering for doing what is right. And Peter encourages them, keep doing what is right and look to Christ who also suffered. And He was perfect and He suffered for you. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter comes back to that theme again and says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, although something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And he goes on and talks about the insults for the name of Christ. Those who follow Christ, Jesus says, take up your cross. Receive suffering. It, it, begins, it begins with a commitment to put to death what is earthly in you. And as you follow Christ with, with that renewed commitment as a new creature in Christ. If anyone in Christ is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. And you follow Christ with that, with that renewed zeal to live for Christ, to have your life shaped by Christ, then... Persecution comes, suffering comes. Don't give up. Daily, take up your cross. Daily, follow Jesus Christ. You know, there, in a society like ours, where we don't face persecution like we read others have in church history, There can be kind of, I I hesitate to use this word, but for lack of a better term at the moment, there can kind of be a romantic view about suffering, about martyrdom for Christ. I'd, I'd gladly die for Christ. Well, what do you do when you're on your phone? Are you dying for Christ then? Or are you making provision for your flesh? Let's not dichotomize these things. A true disciple is daily putting to death what is earthly in him. And don't expect, don't expect that if you're living for whatever you want to live for, if you're making provision for the flesh, like Paul says in Romans 13, 14, to not do, 
Don't expect that when the pressure of persecution and the pressure of suffering and the pressure of giving up everything, even your life for the sake of Christ, when that comes, that you're going to respond well. If you haven't been daily taking up the cross to follow Christ. This is what disciples do. Disciples daily take up their cross. They put to death the deeds of the flesh. They identify with Christ in the midst of the pressures of the world. And when it comes to being willing to stand with Christ or to stand with the world, they've cultivated because of the work of God in them because of the spirit of God at work within them they've called it such cultivated a commitment to Christ that it's the next step and God's grace will be sufficient in that time of trial believers renounce self-sovereignty they receive suffering and Jesus going back to Mark chapter 8 in that theme statement of the passage, the overarching instruction that he gives as he explains discipleship, Jesus says, let, them, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forfeiting your life to Christ means renouncing self-sovereignty, self-worship, self-idolatry. It means willing to receive suffering, And showing that by your daily commitment to obey Christ and putting to death what is earthly in you and living against the grain of the world, against the tide of the flesh. And it's at a complete reorientation of your life to the Savior. Follow me. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me. Reorient your life to the Savior. Following Christ simply means to obey Christ. What Christ says is the answer. It means going where He wants and doing what He wants you to do. For Peter, this took on significant meaning in the end of the Gospel of John. You remember Peter is after he denied Christ and repented. The Lord is graciously preparing him for ministry and preparing him for suffering. And, you know, Peter's looking around, he sees John, and he says, well, what about him? Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Following Christ means obeying Christ, orienting your life entirely to the Savior. And we're not, again, we're not talking about here geographical locations or finding Jesus on Google Maps, and I need to go wherever that is. It's not going to happen. Right? This is about a mindset. And Scripture will often direct your thinking, direct your life differently than the world advises. But a follower of Christ means that you follow God's Word regardless of the cost. When Christ speaks through the Scriptures, the discussion is over. The final word has been given 
and to choose my own way when confronted with Scripture is disastrous. True Christians, true followers of Christ, they delight to follow their Savior. They delight to have their thinking and their life from top to bottom, from the inside to the outside, entirely revamped and reordered by the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. Forfeit your life to follow Christ. Well, Jesus goes on. And the second point, I admit, it might be a little confusing because it starts with a number. The second point is four reasons to forfeit your life. Four reasons to forfeit your life. Forfeit your life to follow Christ and then four reasons to forfeit your life. Look at, verse, look at the beginning of each of the following verses. Each of the following verses begins with four. F-O-R, not F-O-U-R. But together they constitute four. F-O-U-R. All right, so these are our four reasons to follow Christ. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my word, words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." I've split these up as four reasons, but they build on one another. You can go backwards and forwards as so often you can with Jesus' words, and they make perfect sense. It's no wonder that J.C. Ryle says that this passage ought to be a constant point of meditation for every believer. Four reasons to forfeit your life. Reason number one, living to save your life Living to save your life is a waste. Living to save your life is a waste. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What is it that often hinders you from obeying Christ? It's a lack of faith, it's fear, it's vulnerability. If we think again about what it means to follow Christ, that I'm denying myself, that I'm taking up my cross daily, and that I'm following Christ, I'm reorienting my whole life according to what Jesus says. And then as I read through the Gospels and I read, or the epistles, and I read the specific instructions that are given to believers, are given to the church, and I, I come across things like telling the truth or forgiving as I have been forgiven, or pursuing what is pure. And we could go on and on, having all my words full of grace, seasoned with salt, not letting anything come out of my mouth, but what is appropriate for the moment that it might minister grace to the hearers, right? All of these, all of these instructions, all of these things that, that characterize a new creature and I come across those in this world, and I think, you know, it would be really easy to tell a lie right now because that would make me look a whole lot better. 
or I really don't want to forgive that person. That would make me very vulnerable to, to extend an unconditional forgiveness after what they did to me. I fear that. I'm vulnerable. Pursue purity. Pursue what is holy to the Lord. Well, I need my escapes. Right? Fear, vulnerability to ourself, to what we enjoy, to the world. That is often what hinders us from obeying the Lord. We want, we want the approval of people. We want a life of ease. We want to enjoy life in this world. And Jesus says, no, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Forfeiting your life to Christ means living to spend your life for Christ. It means that the gospel of the Lord Jesus redefines everything about your life. You're willing, you're willing to bring everything under the control of Christ. You're willing to allow your life to be an amplifier of the gospel. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 when he speaks to the Thessalonians and he says, the gospel has sounded out from you. Why? Because you turned from, from idols to serve the living and true God. Their lives amplified the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result, the Thessalonians were facing persecution. They were facing suffering because they were living for Christ. Paul says that he's been crucified with Christ and therefore he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And the life he lives in the body, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. You know, I've, I've touched on pretty benign things in our Western culture here. They're not benign. It's important to forgive if we're sinning, if we're not forgiving. We're sinning if we're not telling the truth. In the first century and, and so many centuries throughout church history, it literally was between saving your life in the sense of extending it or losing your life because of your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. And notice that those two are connected. The gospel is Jesus' gospel. It's entirely tied in to who He is and what He accomplished. And throughout the centuries, believers have been pressured to turn away and to denounce and to, re and to deny the Lord Jesus to extend their lives. And Jesus says, if it comes to that, what, if it comes to that, better to lose your life. Better to lose your life than to waste it. Because if you try to save your life, if you try to gain a few more hours on this earth... By denying me at the expense of faithfulness to Christ, it's a wasted opportunity to bear witness for Christ and His gospel, and it calls your very profession into question. No, whoever would save his life will lose it. 
And it ties into the renunciation of self-sovereignty and self-worship. If I'm worshiping myself, I'm going to do everything I can to save my life. I'm going to do everything I can to enjoy my life. But a renunciation of self, a willingness to suffer, and an orientation to the Lord Jesus Christ says, you know what? If I keep living for myself, it's a waste. It's a waste. Living to save your life is a waste. Verse 36, For for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Reason number two, living to save your stuff is a waste. And I'm making this oversimplified in that point. Jesus says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He's making a value statement. If you gain everything there is in the world and yet lose your soul, what have you gained? The whole world, the material stuff, the approval of man, ascension to power, cannot compensate for the eternal destruction of your soul. You can have everything in the world. Gain it all, and yet if you forfeited your soul, you have nothing. Dane alluded to this in his prayer. Two chapters later, we have an example of it in the rich young ruler. Go ahead and flip over there, page or two probably in your Bible. Mark chapter 10. The rich young man comes to Jesus and asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Right? He, has, he has good intentions. And based on his response to Jesus, when he lists some of the commandments, he's a good boy. These I've done. But then verse 21, Jesus looking at him loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying or darkened or shocked, gloomy, his countenance changed. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The point of that passage is that The man saw himself as self-righteous. He kept all these moral codes, but his heart was entirely devoted to the world. He had a heart of covetousness. And Jesus, when, when he pinpointed his possessions, he pinpointed the man's idol, his point of worship. It was his stuff. And he didn't want to give it up. Oh, he was rich, but he didn't even have a smallest fraction of what the world has to offer. And he didn't want to give that up. He was sorrowful. His countenance completely changed. You know, oh, good, good. I I haven't done anything bad to my parents. I haven't killed anybody. I'm good. Yeah, but you still love yourself. Because you love what you have more than you love the Savior, the God who gave it to you. 
Living to save your stuff is a waste. Living to accumulate anything this world offers wastes your life. If that's the whole orientation of my life, if it's for the stuff in this world, if it's for the praise of men, even if it's good deeds in pursuit of my own righteousness, stuff itself, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, it's all passing away. It's all going to be burnt up. Affections that are dominated by the world testify to an empty soul, to a soul that is bankrupt from the things of God. You can gain the whole world. And, and, you know, think about what Jesus is saying here. (laughs) The whole world. You know, take, take what we know about the world today. Take the wealth of the wealthiest nations, the power of the most powerful nations, and pretend for a moment that it's all yours. You can go wherever you want to go. You can take whatever chartered jet you want to take to wherever you want to go. You can, you can be in the best hotels, the best resorts, the most exotic adventures. You name it, it's yours. You've got it all. If it's at the expense of your soul, it's nothing. All you have, all of that, It's passing away. It's going to be burned. You have nothing. Living to save your stuff is a waste. Jesus makes another follow-up statement in verse 37. What can a man give in return for his soul? Reason number one, living to save your life is a waste. Reason number two, living to save your stuff is a waste. Reason number three, wasting your life costs your soul. Wasting your life costs your soul. What can a man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing. You exchange what is priceless, your soul, for what is passing away. And so it doesn't doesn't matter how much stuff that is passing away that you have, it will never be enough for your soul. Your soul is eternal. It is given to you by God to delight in God, to delight in the person of God, to delight in the one who is spirit and who is truth. And using this life that God has given to you, For you to enjoy Him, to love Him, to live in fellowship with Him, to love those around you, using this life to fill your soul with nothingness is the greatest tragedy of all. God alone can fill your soul. If I'm pursuing everything in this world and come to the end of my life, That question rings in my head. What can a man give in return for his soul? And how many wealthy people have come to the end of their life and their mind is scrambling, what can I give? And the answer comes back with a resounding nothing. Nothing. Your coffers are full. You have a lot of land. You have a lot of memories, even maybe with family. 
but you've neglected your soul. There's nothing you can give. The most important thing you can care for in your life is your soul. And folks, that requires what? Faith. Can you see your soul? I can't see my soul. I can't see your soul. But God says we have it. And God says it's eternal. And God says we're going to be in one of two places for all eternity and to be with Him in His gracious presence for all eternity and to not be cut off from His gracious presence for all eternity means that I have in faith turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and in faith I believe that He has accomplished all that is necessary for my salvation, for my eternity, and because Christ has done it all, I am willing to give it all up and remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a full soul. That is something that the accumulation of property and life experiences cannot be, will, never, will never replace. The accumulation of property and life experience cannot be exchanged for your soul in the tribunal of the Son of God. Wasting your life costs your soul. Verse 38. Again, Jesus building. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. Notice what Jesus is doing here. The The apostles expect Him to come. They expect to see His glory. And Jesus says, yes, you will. But it starts back in verse 31 by understanding that the cross must come first. The cross comes first. The work of Christ comes first. The work of redemption, the work of salvation accomplished at the cross. And those then who are followers of Christ, those who receive the provision of the gospel based on the work of Jesus Christ. They follow Christ and they live for Christ on this world, but they do so in anticipation of His coming in glory. They do so in anticipation of the day when He will be revealed with the glory of His Father and all the angels. This passage is the New Testament in a nutshell. I mean, you're probably thinking Revelation and all the glory and and many other passages that, that speak of the glory of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus says as he moves to that resounding statement of his coming in glory, he prefaces it with a warning That if you're ashamed of him and of his words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes. The fourth reason is that wasting your life costs you Christ's approval. Wasting your life costs you Christ's approval. A life given to save face, a life given to collect what this world has to offer is a life lived for the evil and adulterous generation from which Christ came to save you. 
Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 says that he came to deliver us from this evil generation. He came to deliver us from this world. He came to deliver us from what is passing away. And those who live for what is passing away, those who do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who alone can fill their souls, the one who alone can, who can bring them into fellowship with the God with whom they were designed to have fellowship forever and ever, to reject all of that is to be rejected on the day of judgment. You're ashamed of the Lord and the way that you live in this life. You're living for the, for the approval of man. You're living for what you can gain. The Lord will be ashamed of you on that day. The fear of man that replaces a fear of God, the fear of man will cost you eternal life. Can you imagine what that will be like? You know, there, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, and who the Lord says, I never knew you. And, and Jesus waits that warning. He freights that warning with, with a picture of the day. He's coming. He's coming in glory. It's inevitable it's going to happen. And when he comes, if your life has been oriented to this world, if your life has been like the rich young ruler where you turn away because of the possessions, where you turn away because of the fear of man, where you do not live a life changed by Christ and complete allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, on that day, the Lord will be ashamed of you in the presence of His glory and of the angels. A life devoted to this world and dominated by its passions is a life that will be bring shame before the Lord Jesus Christ. A day is coming. A day is coming when Christ will return in glory, the glory that the disciples expected. It's going to come. It's just going to be at another time. And Jesus is preparing you for it as he explains what it means to follow him. Well, finally this morning, last point, fix your hope on Christ. Forfeit your life to follow Christ. Four reasons to forfeit your life. And now fix your hope on Christ. As Jesus finishes this statement, he speaks of coming in glory with his, of the Father and the holy angels. And then in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there, is one, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus is looking forward to the glorious day that is to come. He is... He's, relating the fulfillment of a prophecy that is in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. You can look that up if you'd like at a later time, where it talks about the Son of Man coming in glory and ruling all the nations. That day is coming. 
But then Jesus gives this promise to some who are standing there. And you could almost look at what he's promising as a down payment of the reality of that final day. Some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this is a quite an interesting statement, and there are a number of ways that people interpret it. I'm just going to give you the way that we're handling it here this morning. I think based on the context of what follows, which is the transfiguration that Lord willing will consider on Tuesday, and also a passage in Second Peter chapter 1, that the promise that Jesus gives here, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see as king, as the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It refers to the transfiguration, the, the seeing of the Lord Jesus in His glory. And I want to uh, just have you turn to one passage, uh, that passage in 2 Peter. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. I love it when Scripture comments on Scripture, right? The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Peter often talked about Christ's coming. He was looking for Christ. And although he certainly was imperfect in his following of Christ, later on in the gospel, he's going to deny Christ. His orientation was for the return of Christ. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 16. As Peter is writing his last letter, reminding those readers of their need to pursue Christ because He is coming, Peter says, "...we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty." I want you to think about that for a moment. Peter is saying, we, we came and we preached that Jesus is coming. We preached that the Son of Man is coming and the glory of His Father with His angels. And he's reminding the readers, we didn't make that up. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So he's, he's declaring, we heard from Jesus, but we also saw the glory of Christ Right? We, we, saw a, we got a taste of what to expect. And, and so as we're reading, we ask the question, well, Peter, what did you mean when you said we were eyewitnesses of His majesty? Look at verse 17. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is saying, Christ is coming. We made, known the, we made that known to you. And, and part of the verification of our testimony is that we got a taste of it when we saw his glory. And we heard the father say, this is my son. So believers, what Paul uh, to that Peter is writing to there in 2 Peter, fix your hope on Christ. 
Because he is coming, the Son of Man is indeed coming. And those disciples were promised, some of you are going to see the, the glory of the kingdom of God when it comes with power. Six days later, they got a glimpse of it. Christ fulfilled his promise to them. And just like he fulfilled his promise to some who are standing there, he's going to fulfill his promise that one day he will come and everybody will know when the coming of the Son of Man happens, it's going to be like lightning from one end of the heaven to the other and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what you need to fix your hope on. And so when it becomes difficult to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow Christ, fix your hope on the coming of Christ. He is coming again. A Christian not pursuing full allegiance to Christ is not a Christian that's known in Scripture. Seeking to save your life and accumulate what you can in this world is a waste. It yields no eternal gain. And yes, Peter himself would deny Christ, and we we find comfort in that because we recognize how imperfect we are in our pursuit of Christ. But like David, his orientation was to the Lord, and when he was confronted, he repented So may we also have our orientation entirely committed to Christ. May we take seriously what Jesus describes here, because what he describes here is what it looks like to be a Christian. You turn from your own way, you accept that Christ alone provides forgiveness from sin, and because he saved you from eternal death, You owe your life to Him, and with joy and with delight, you pledge allegiance to Him, even if it is with your life. You follow Christ, you forfeit your life to Him, and you fix your hope on Him. Well, I commend again to you as we close today, I don't want to close As we close today, this rich passage, J.C. Ryle's comment that the whole passage is one which should often form the subject of private meditation. So even as we leave today and have some opportunity to fellowship, may this passage, these precious words of Christ, this definition of life in Christ, be the subject of our meditation for days to come, that we would honor our Savior, honor our King by the way that we live our lives for His glory. Lord Jesus, thank You today for coming, for living a perfect life, for dying a sacrificial death to save Your people from their sins. Thank You for conquering death. Thank you that in you the sting of death is gone and that when we face death, whether it's by the hands of those who hate you or because our time on earth is done according to your purposes, that because of what you have done, all those who are in Christ will be with you forever. We look forward to that day. 
And Lord, we pray for those who still love the world, for those who are entangled by the things of this life that are passing away, whose affections are far from you. Lord, would you be merciful to them? Would the word of God work to convict them of their sin? And the Spirit of God work to regenerate them and turn them to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.